Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Why should you read Four Low Magazine? Because Four Low Magazine is about your lifestyle, the four-wheel drive adventure lifestyle that we all enjoy. Rock crawling, trail riding, event coverage, vehicle builds, and do-it-yourself tech all in a beautifully presented package. You won't find Four Low on the newsstand rack, so subscribe today and have it delivered to you. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Greg Higgs. Greg is the CEO of Fab Fours, an old school rock crawler with We Rock, a graduate of Texas A&M, and I believe from Houston, Texas. But we're going to talk to Greg about his history. But first, Greg, thank you so much for coming on board and uh, having this conversation with me this morning. You got it. Thank you, Big. And uh, you gave me a little bit of background. So if you want me to just start from the beginning, I'll let her rip. Yeah, let her rip. Okay. Well, I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. So I was born in 79. I think that puts me at 42 years old now. Yep. And lived out on the west side, Bear Creek, Katy area. Um, Great place to grow up, sports, outdoors, scouting. Uh, Luckily, my folks forced me to stick it out all the way through Eagle Scout. And they, you know, those early days, just growing up, it was a lot of, my dad kind of had a woodworking shop, called himself a wood butcher, just in our you know, normal neighborhood garage, oh, just for building shelves and things like that. And I had my own little workbench where I'd build PVC guns and spray paint them black and modifying my little three-wheelers and all sorts of things. Just growing up, liked <clears throat> driving or you know, riding, whatever that may be. Such that I got lucky, you know, folks were able to get me a one-wheel drive go-kart, and it became kind of my obsession. Anytime they take me driving that, that grew to a dirt bike, and then another dirt bike, and then eventually, before even being 16, my dad had found a old 77 Renegade CJ5 on the side of the road. We bought that money pit, uh, which I just broke constantly mudding. But having a great time, just reinforcing that passion for off-road, camping, outdoors. And then after graduating high school, I actually, I'll admit to this, I had (laughs) wanted to go to West Point, uh, kind of following my dad's footsteps, the military academy, with the mindset that I wanted to just play with tanks and Hummers. You know, the (laughs) Army seemed like a likely fit for the stuff I love doing, um, problem solving and off-roading. Well, 
while I had some apprehensions around the discipline that also came with that, which I knew I wouldn't like, you know, I have no tolerance for hazing or bullying or that type of thing. So that piece worried me a little bit, but it seemed like the fun was going to outweigh it. Unfortunately, I had managed to limit my options, if you will, by not making good enough grades in high school. <laughs> I was going to so ask just, about that. I was going to yeah. ask about that. Okay. N- not a good student, honestly. Uh, just enough to get by. Much rather sports and fun and just suffered kind of through school as needed. Thought I kept it, you know, enough in line to not limit the options, but I was wrong. So despite getting the, you know, you have to have a congressman, you know, vouch for you and all these things for the application and the Eagle Scout, it had me close, but not quite there because of the academics. So I ended up um, using a program called the Civilian Prep Scholarship, which was you can go to, in my case, Texas A&M for a year, prove that you can make the grades and then transfer in to West Point. So okay. it seemed like a good plan. A lot of my friends from Houston were going to A&M. And so off I went. And in that first year, almost immediately, you know, because my eyes are always peeled for cool cars and trucks, saw a truck in the parking lot with a Texas A&M off-road windshield banner on it. Okay. Managed to track them down only to find out the club had been started, you know, two months ago and there was maybe three members. <laughs> well, it seemed perfect for me. So I joined and in short order, we started going on trips to, you know, as a local within six hours type of thing as you could. And one of those was Fort Hood. Um, Fort Hood, huge base yes. in like clean Texas or something. And we'd go there and we'd play and rock crawl and get in the mud and do all the stuff we were doing. And so then the combination started to happen. One, I'm not going to deny the fact that I don't think I brought my grades up much. But second, I kind of came to the realization like, man, I'm already going to Fort Hood and I'm playing with trucks and I don't have discipline. So (laughs) I just bailed on the whole idea. Never even turned in the rest of the paperwork. Stayed at Texas A&M. Did my l- let me there? let me ask a question yep. there. Did that did that bother your your parents or your dad that you Zero. stated? Okay. It, if anything I've ever done has bothered them, I am still unaware of it to this day. Oh, perfect. Uh, they're very very supportive. Okay. And you know, I think I've always been so kind of independent and stubborn and somewhat self reliant enough that. They just didn't worry about whatever I wanted to do. They just, just they just figured you were going to make it. And a lot of that has, I think, to do with that you were able to get your Eagle Scout. I mean, getting that that level, um, it's it's not an easy endeavor. It takes a lot of work and dedication to get to that level. I know I'm an Eagle Scout myself, um, and it's. Uh, you know, you really have to push through it. What what kind of uh, what kind of sports did you play in high school? I was basketball and soccer. Okay. Mostly, growing my obsession with basketball. Um, so, to this day, you know, COVID shut down the small gym that we were playing in. 
So now I'm going on two years of not playing any basketball, which oh. is my only physical release for all of the sheer rage that comes with business ownership. <laughs> so it's just pent up. But now I feel like if I try to go play a pickup game, I'm almost certain to blow something out at this point. <laughs> There's no way I would get away without losing an Achilles or another ACL or something. I've blown my ACL out twice on my left leg. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, continue on. You're at, uh, you're at A&M. Hey, just a point to your Eagle Scout thing, yes. since a lot of listeners are probably young parents as well. And, you know, scouting starts out fun. Little kids, camping, learning some independence. Yes, it is a lot of work to get your eagle, but the less talked about but more real problem with that is the competing parabolas because you don't really get your eagle until you're almost you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. True. Well, now you've come into friggin' high school with all sorts of different new and fun things to do, let alone distractions, everything else, (laughs) so many distractions. And probably from 10 on, you're kind of combating a little bit of the stigma that it's dorky to still be in scouts. Like, what are you? Oh, you're still in scouts. By those that fail. So while it's a great thing, it's a good thing to do. But just know as a parent, like, if you can try to encourage a kid to do it rapidly, as young as possible, it's going to greatly increase the probability of getting all the way through it instead of trying to drag out those last few things when they're in high school. Yeah. I got mine. I got mine just as I was turning 14, but I waited for a friend to get his done so we could do a double ceremony. And, uh, so, you know, it was, uh, most of those distractions were out of the, were out of the way. I mean, my Eagle was out of the way when those distractions came about. You're right though. Absolutely. So now we're early A&M, freshman year. I decided I want to be in the School of Engineering just because I've always been a tinker, designer, like doing things, and wanted that to be my track. Unfortunately, following the ME, mechanical engineering track, put me in very hard classes. (laughs) (laughs) So remember that asterisk of I only try to get by in school. I don't enjoy the process of studying and acquiring knowledge right? like academically as opposed to real world. Uh, and just looking around the room, it just didn't seem like I belonged in that. And I sniffed out a degree track there, which was pretty new, maybe two or three years old at the time. Now, granted, this was back in 2000. And yeah, about 2000, when I switched over to industrial distribution, which turned out to be an amazing path for me there. It's more of a sales-minded degree inside of the engineering school. Oh, nice. So if okay. intended graduates would go into technical sales, whether it's you know selling abrasives or industrial HVAC, just something where it's more of that sales track where you have to be savvy enough to understand and be mechanically minded, but you're not the type of guy that could just sit there and crank out CAD for nine hours a day okay. on a small doodad. So perfect fit for me and a big shout out to industrial distribution. I think now the program is you know, world renowned there and it's a perfect 
hybrid for those who would consider themselves the same, you know, mechanically minded, but sales bent. And uh, so I did that, took a extra lap, got out of there in five years, having a great time off-roading all over the place, uh, just learning how to actually fabricate and weld, grind everything by buddies in the A&M Off-Road Club, just sharing their experience with me, helping me build my first couple of rigs there. Okay. So testament to them, we're still friends to this day. In fact, every year in December after finals, it's the annual A&M Off-Road Trip to Clayton, Oklahoma. And us OGs from the original, we still go there. So you've got a blend of, you know, freshmen up to us early 40s guys out there still doing it. And I think that's really cool now because you get to see that whole spread from, you know, poor college kid with cheap rigs up to, you know, full working professional adults with sundowner trailers and sweet tow rigs and buggies with rear steer showing up. Well, I, th- so I think that's kinda... really good motivation for those younger guys too, to see, you know, Definitely. what you, what, what you guys that are OGs have gone through and where you've gotten. That's great. Yep. But then still all just cutting back, drinking a beer around the exact same fire, you know? So it's a lot of fun. Um, after graduating, I had this, vision of living in Australia, owning a Toyota Hilux that I could go to the beach with on the weekends. That was it. That was my grand (laughs) plan. Like, how do I get to Australia with a Hilux? And took a job with the oil company who had an office in Perth, Australia. So I'm like, sweet, game on. Moved out there. And within... I think two and a half weeks, they said, Hey, we actually need help in the Jakarta office. That's and how you ended like, up in Indonesia. <laughs> yep. Okay. My first response was like, you know, come again. Like I had an Australia plan. A B I've never heard of Jakarta. Like what <laughs> are you even talking about? And sure enough, for, for those who do know those two, uh, are very much not the same. <laughs> Australia is just like a more rugged, wild, outback version of America. Indonesia was like crazy, super corrupt, barely above third world back then, you know, with you know, almost abject poverty right next to skyscraper type scenario. Very crazy place to live. And so I was there, but it's an experience, a terrible one at first. Uh, first couple months, you know, I had to share an apartment with my boss. Guy was a total sleazebag. Learned a lot about how not to be a boss from that guy. Perfect. And after kind of a couple months of self-loathing of what in the heck am I doing here as a 23-year-old, I should be having fun as a young working professional. And instead I am on the opposite side of the earth from where I grew up. I don't know anybody. And I was basically trapped because most expatriates or expats, you know, are bringing an entire career's worth of knowledge. That's why most of them are 60 years old because they need to come in and 
you know, have five expatriates and 30 locals to do an office. That's kind of just the way the work works. And so you get granted permits and visas because you're bringing such vast knowledge. And then there's Greg. I didn't know anything about anything. <laughs> I had no business being there. Uh, so I therefore also did not have a unique place to live, a driver, anything, no transportation. So I was just kind of trapped there. Well, I got over that, as I said, self-loathing. It's like, you know what? Whatever. I'm here. Let's do something. Right. So go to what, you know, I love off-roading, you know, like there's gotta be something going on here. How do I find it? I want to see it. So started venturing out and sure enough, found some groups and started going on some rides, just kind of tagging along. And it was fun. It felt familiar again because as you know, big being around the world, we're all the same, same people. If you share that passion for off-road, it's the same, you know, rolling around in the dirt, fixing stuff, figuring out how to get a limp vehicle back to camp, who can get across that, who did it best. It's the same stuff, same camaraderie, same type of dudes, no matter where you go. Just the terrain and humidity changes. Yeah. And sometimes the vehicles as well, Yes, based on available technology and how developed the community is, which in this case I saw as an opportunity because it felt like Indonesia was at least a decade behind. Like some vehicles had just started to do spring over conversions, which, you know, we were doing that here freaking in the eighties, right? you know, and even in my short tenure at that time of off-roading, we're already, you know, trying to do quarter elliptical four links and some of these things. I mean, this is a little bit ahead of even air shocks and things, but it still felt like the future compared to spring overs. Right. So being a know nothing, but aspiring entrepreneur, I was like, well, man, what better way to start a business than if you had a crystal ball and you basically knew the next three evolutions of a market. And instead of just skipping them to the technology of the day in the U S why not just stay two years ahead each time? Just, you already know the progressions that they were going to go through. That's a pretty, uh, what's a good word for it? Just, a little bit too self-confident and egotistical perspective that <laughs> I would know all that and they didn't know that. And I would be the great bringer of technology from the U S to Jakarta. But as luck would have it, I bumped into in a random bar. That I don't even know how I got to it. A another Texan who was an ex oil well firefighter one of the genuine Red Adair guys, like from the old IMAX. So this guy and I start chatting and 30 minutes later, I was telling about, you know, I want to start an off-road shop, like a four wheel parts and, you know, go from there and build this thing out. And he goes, you know what, man, if you got a plan, I got the money. Like, let's do it here. I was like, whoa, did not see that coming. Like, 
I was not in any way in love with Jakarta, you know, at, at that time. So I kind of mixed that up, like the, the combination of the timing and seeing the opportunity, but not to stay and do it long term. Right. But yet I didn't have a better option. I mean, I hated my boss. The work wasn't very fun at that company. It's like, shit, let's try it. All right, I'm in. So I quit my job, moved into his house, told my parents, like, that's it. I'm, I now live in Jakarta. I met this investor. I'm going to open an off-road shop. To which that I'm certain they had to think was absolutely nuts and a terrible idea. <laughs> but again, full support. So, you know, they came over a couple times to visit in the, you know, three and a half years I lived there. But that's what I was doing. So I actually brought a buddy over from Navasota, Texas, who I'd met in the A&M Off-Road Club to kind of bring the fabricating expertise. He had never been on a plane in his whole life until he boarded to fly 27 hours, you know, via three stops to get to Jakarta, Indonesia. <laughs> so total shell shock for a rural Navasota guy to come over there. But we just had a ball, man. I wouldn't trade some of those memories we made for the world. It was a crazy experience. You know, did a couple of those little like Malaysia challenge-esque things and just had the opportunity to bring in some like Toyota doublers, Atlas transfer case, some red label crawlers, some trail-ready wheels, you know, just all the cool stuff at the time. So I felt like I was in hog heaven. You know, I got to curate kind of the mix of products and then attempt to become a, an authority in the off-road space, which I had one good thing going for me. Being a 23 year old white guy in Jakarta, that alone made no sense to anybody. So it made for quick press. Like, what is this guy doing? Why is he even here? And that helped a lot because the kind of leaders, you know, your equivalent of your Iron Man Stewart in Jakarta type guys were finding me to feel like, what, what's this all about? You know, this is interesting. Let's participate. Nice. So they kind of helped me get my feet on the ground there. And it was fledgling, impossible, didn't speak the language, too much corruption. You know, it was some tough sledding for sure. And along the way, this is bringing you kind of to the origins of Fab Fours. I had sleuthed out a company in Thailand that was making bumpers that would fit vehicles that were there in Jakarta because those are not like U.S. domestic cars at all. They're, right. You know, Hiluxes, Amaroks, and just you know, Datsun type things. Well, they had products for that. So I flew up to Thailand to meet with this guy, and was just awestruck by the facility that he had there. It just built this immaculate manufacturing plant, like gleaming white painted floors, just a whole new level from anything I had seen before. Especially and in Jakarta. Especially compared to there where it's mostly dirt right. <laughs> floors. You see guys squatting with no welding hoods, barefoot welding fences <laughs> and stuff. I mean, 
crazy. Um, well, so to keep the story short, a couple trips later, I realized, man, I can have my own bumper brand, which I skipped from being a kid, but I was obsessed with bumpers since my 97 Ram. I drew up a bumper for it and had a guy local there in Houston, Clifford's Custom Welding, made it for me. And his slogan was, if you can dream it, I can build it. Kind of a motto I've half lived by ever since. But that goes all the way back to then. It's like Bumper is your identity. It's the one accessory you can see from 30 feet away. You might have 40 grand into your truck, but that's the main thing that drives the identity of the vehicle. So I always love that being a artistic sketching person. Like if you're drawing cars, planes, whatever, like now this is something I could draw where I've changed, whether it's a Dodge or a Ford and made it look different. So I love bumpers then fast forward. I guess that's not that far from 97 to here I am in 2004 or five going, man, I think I could design my own bumpers, manufacture them in Thailand, import them to the U S and go, that's it. You know, I've got a worldview. Uh, I'm all about this, uh, finding low cost manufacturing and they've got what appeared to be a total world-class facility. So shut down the Jakarta office, looked at a map of the U S and chose Durango, Colorado. This is like, I could live anywhere. I'm not going back to Houston. I like mountains. I want to be near Moab. I don't want to be in a major city. Durango's it, baby. And so moved there. Was still under the auspice of importing from Thailand. Okay. Started developing the first bumpers right there in Durango, hand building these things, shipped a prototype to Thailand for them to quote off of, reverse engineer, understand exactly what we're looking for. Flew over at the 11th hour when it was time to sign the deal for the first purchase order, and he doubled the price. Brought out a couple Singha beers, and I mean, I can see that to this day, the guy walking in with a tray with these big Singhas, and then right then saying, you know, slid over like the new price, and immediately the business became unviable. (laughs) So bailed, flew home, tail between my legs, and had to either shut the whole thing down, figure out what else to do, or what did happen, my family helped bridge that investment gap. So the timing now, this is the second half of 2005, because our plan was to debut at SEMA, which is November of 05 and that I ended up needing my family to invest from that point in 05 until 08. That's how long it took us to kind of build the whole foundation and establish the brand and get enough critical mass and cash flow to not need any additional investment. So to this day, huge shout out to them. Thank God I was able to, uh, you know, not to give away the ending of the story, but make a exit from Fab Fours and pay them back every last penny and all their interest. But um, that was their leap of faith and gave me the opportunity to just keep uh, the ball rolling. Now having to figure out how to 
make bumpers domestically in a crunch. So this is where all of a sudden Durango became a terrible choice for where to have a business like this because there were no resources. Had I been in Dallas or Houston or somewhere, there would have been nine job shops with lasers, press brakes, and powder coat we could have used, quoted with, co-developed with. Instead, there was zero. Right. You know, the closest is actually Tuffy, uh, which to this day, you know, still makes great security boxes. They were in Cortez, which is only like 45 minutes away. Yes. So they actually became one of the early outsource vendors to Fab Fours. And we just worked our tails off there in 05, trying to develop a full line to debut at that SEMA show. And in 2006, and 2007, I spent driving this entire freaking country, just going shop to shop, city to city, uh, pre, you know, smartphone, where you had to go in and try to use dial up to get the maps or using the yellow pages. And then your kind of Tom Tom GPS, it was pretty <laughs> tough to figure out and map a route and try to see, you know, eight shops a day before I would just carny my way to the next town. And then sprinkled with that was my gratuitous use of early funds to build a badass rock crawler and go compete in We Rock, which is where our first path crossed. Yes. Because I use that as a great excuse for how to build a brand and combine kind of my passion for real off-road with a bumper company. Like you don't have to be a hardcore enthusiast to have a bumper company, especially nowadays. Back then I thought it would help and it would, you know, create that credibility of the brand because it was just cool and something to follow. And I just wanted it. So <laughs> it worked out. I mean, we were terrible competing, honestly. I mean, every time I'd go there it was more about putting on the biggest show that we could to get cool pictures out of it, to get the crowd fired up. Um, and that was kind of my early rock crawling professional, both with Rerock and the competing organization, you rock right. back then. And, you know, I still think that's pretty cool because that time having a rear steer buggy, that was pretty freaking early in the game, you know? Like I was competing against Randy Torbett, a crazy, you know, name I just saw like five months ago. I was like, holy crap, there's a blast from the past. Remember when we he would compete in that tractor axle rig, like yep. single seater? I believe they Super were New innovative. Holland axles, yep. Super innovative. And he was fearless to do some of those things. Yes. Now, granted, the obstacles that seemed terrifying back then are like trail rides these days <laughs> it seems like true enough but it was really cool and you know i still kind of hang my hat on that 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 was in the early for rear steer so i've had rear steer since 2005 that's a long time with every single rig having it to just to get that experience i mean now the game's changing so much if you don't have rear steer there's almost no reason to even go out to St. George and San Hollow with all those cracks and now portal axles and everything. True. But, 
that was fun being in the kind of early throws when rock crawling was really transitioning away from bring your trail rig Jeep and compete against the next guy to it just spawned kind of that space race of technology, like just people trying new ideas. So I've stayed really close to it. One, just cause I love it. I've, I have not lost one speck of my passion for the actual sport slash hobby of off-roading after all these years, you know, other things like golf and stuff, you know, get frustrating and you kind of go through fads with it. But the off-roading and the community of it, everything about it, from the tow rig to what trailer you're using to where you're going and setting up the logistics and then actually just being out there, drinking beer, having fun. Uh, love it to this day. And for me, it's always kind of been a motivator. Like, what's the point of, of any of this? Why work so hard? Why even build a bumper company? It's all about trying to just accumulate resources to both innovate for the business sake and my own passion for just tinkering, but also to fund my expensive habit of wanting to off-road and to see that community grow, which is partially why, actually, I can't say partially, it's 99% why I sponsored Trailbreaker with your son for the last three years. Nice. It had almost zero value to fab fours as a bumper selling company. You know, my marketing team just had to choke down those dollars because it's, those was my piece of the marketing budget. All their stuff is legitimate where they tracked ROI and had to justify every dollar. And then mine was I'm supporting little rich because I believe in what he's doing out there. And he's, still just pushing that sport and it ain't easy. He's got to put a ton of work into that. And since I don't have the time or the proximity to be participating in that way, I can certainly participate in helping fund some of that so that we don't take our foot off the gas on this thing, right. seeing how far it, we can push the sport. It, it really is hard to quantify the investment. We, we run through that all the time with, with our marketing partners. And what, what I, what I've noticed is that the, the powers that be at a lot of companies now are hiring people that, uh, have a degree, but that degree is, you know, it's, it's in marketing, um, but it's so social media driven or mm. internet driven that they don't, they've lost or they, they, they never had the insight of what our sport and lifestyle is really about. And it's, it's about, you know, person to person socializing, you know, it's, it's about building relationships, uh, making contact with people in a real world way, not on the internet and people touch, taste, feel, smell products and the lifestyle, you know, it's, there's there's a lot of people that that buy from the internet but the people that that are that are really the buyers are still out there doing instead of just sitting and watching 
Well, I agree with you. I think the marketing degree and social, that is extremely important. They're capturing 50% of it, which is the aspirational element of, man, look what Mad Cow's buggy has on it. I want that too. Like that is sweet. Right. So that they fully understand how to have influencers, how to have the right photography, how to do the SEO. They get that. To your point though, what they're missing is just as aspirational to that consumer is the experience. Correct. Because there are, I guarantee people right now, whether it's listenership or just fellow off-roaders out in the world who with their buddies are going, we've got to make it to Trail Hero 2022. Yep. Oh, so what are you doing? Like, oh, well, I'm going to switch out my air shocks to some ORI struts. You know, if I can, I'm going to do rear steer by then, but I don't know. I'd have to push the back out so far. And I, I don't know if I'd rather do that or just sell it and start over. But that whole conversation, which is going to be buying parts from manufacturers that support these events and things is just as much about that beckoning moment in time that's 18 months away that they're living for and working backwards off of, of trying to save the money, acquire the parts, implement it into the build, troubleshoot it. You do all that so you can get to that moment. And so that's where promoters, you know, you guys have that tough road to hoe because it is freaking hard just watching it from the sidelines. I mean, when he hands me a couple of banners to go nail in, I can only get through like three or four. I'm like, this is somebody else's job. This is miserable. <laughs> I just want a wheel. I, I can't believe nothing. he hands you your own banners to go put up. That lazy At little turd he is. Yeah. Yeah. That worked out. So, but that's, that's one, like 7,000 of the effort oh, yes. of that week. And it, I mean, you know, pulling together an army of volunteers and just coordinating it all. It's, if y'all make a dime on these things, I'd be shocked. Maybe <laughs> there's a time when you pass that, but that's why I wanted to help him and participate in that. It's like, I need to be a steward for the industry that's fueled me for so long and continues to. And so where are the outlets to give back and invest right into it? There's no better place than through a promotion like that that's going to build those kind of mecca destination events right. that people look forward to. I had I had the conversation with Ranch Pratt, um, the last promoter for UROC. You know, he started ARCA, was the first, you know, promoter out there doing a series and was kind of the inspiration for me with Cal Rocks and then We Rock. And one of his things was is that, you know, Man, these these companies out there need to participate. They all think it's all about the social media drive and the numbers of, of you know, I got sixty million followers, you know. But are those sixty million followers truly buying, or are they just looking at the pretty pictures or the you know the girls that they've hired as influencers or whatever? Yeah. Um, we have a lot of most of our most of our marketing partners. They they probably didn't get it at first, you know, meaning, well, what do you, you know, you've got an event series, you're seeing a couple of thousand people at each event, you know, how is that going to help me? 
and until they show up to an event. I've had a lot where, you know, the dad has always run it, been a friend forever. You know, they're supporting us like you are saying, you know, like you do. And then all of a sudden the son takes over or the family takes over or somebody else, you know, they hire somebody, you know, out of college and they don't get it. They don't understand that personal contact. And so they come out to an event and they walk away going, okay, now I get it. You know, they, they get what, what off-road really is about and how supporting something that is hard to quantify and uh, ends up being worth it. You know, you can't track somebody that shows up to an event like ours or from Trail Hero, maybe a little bit more from Trail Hero, but especially at a competitive event because people are showing up that, like a competitive event, people that show up there, they are... They are there for one reason. They like off-road. They're not yeah, there. They, you know, they may drive up in their Honda, but that's not what they're off-roading. You know, they have the pickup trucks. They have the trailers. They have the Jeep, Samurai, Toyota, whatever. And they're, they're building from what they see. They want to be cool like the guys competing. They may not be competitive, but they want to have all the cool stuff. And that's what's forced the aftermarket is the competition end of of rock crawling. So, Big, yep. that's the perfect segue into a little soapbox I got to jump on, okay. which some of your listeners have heard this, but I don't care. I got to do it again. One of the reasons I also like sponsoring not just Little Rich in his pursuit of Trail Hero, but Trail Breaker specifically, is like, the single hardest, most insane single day competition, if you will. It's pure bragging rights, big, terrifying, hard stuff. And I like the irony that Fab Fours is the sponsor because we catch a lot of flack in the off-road community where you, you really are getting to the enthusiast base. Those would be the majority of the people that, you know, say the word fab fours with a sour taste in their mouth because they associate it with things like the grumper and some of the polarizing parts that we had. (laughs) And I get it. I see where they're coming from. I could sit here and defend the actual merits of the parts, the utility that they do have and accomplish, but I get where they're coming from. They think, you know, it's not about that. You need the best, most functional part. That fab four stuff is all kind of mall crawler, glitz and glamour. I say it's somewhere in between, you know, as a inventor, I'm a bumper guy. So you're making bumpers. Then you see companies like RBP who kind of established a market for changing grills on vehicles. I just put those two together. It's like, Oh yeah, that's a bigger palette for me to manipulate and make cool quote unquote. And they are cool to the thousands of people who buy them. They're very cool and they love them. It may not so the be people it, that they may not they may not be a, considered attractive or for the for the guy that is, you know, driving the rear steer buggy um in competition like you're talking about, but the guy that's watching you drive your rear steer buggy is interested in that product. Absolutely. Correct. 
and the connection I want to tie off to as many people as I can get to hear this is I am both of those guys. I competed in Trailbreaker last year. I have a portal rear engine buggy. I was out there for a week and a half, you know, just trail riding with the top drivers on the planet doing the absolute hardest stuff. And I'm also the same guy who sketched up the original Grumper and brought it to life for millions of people to vomit emoji online for the next <laughs> nine years. But you, we talked about that one time and I asked you why. And you said, because we're talking about it. It's true. So that is a fair point that it has. It's good business. So I'm glad that all the aftermarket is built from enthusiasts, which kind of by definition means they all hate the grumper, which by <laughs> that extrapolation means I have no competition. So it's great. You know, I might end up with a 50 foot Hatter's sport fisher one day named grumper money and everybody <laughs> can just look at that and weep. But the joking aside, the point I want to make, and I've given a speech at a banquet there when little rich hand me the mic was, Look, I'm you also. I love hardcore. There is no more hardcore than me. I've got Steve Nance commissioning a buggy. I got another buggy being built here in North Carolina. Like totally pushing the envelope of what's capable for the hardest of hard. But you need to understand we can't just get all 2,000 of us real hardcore guys to just stare at each other and trade dollar bills between one another. Real innovation needs R&D money. There has to be a market driving those things. And things like the Grumper and Vical that turn some people off, why they get so offended, I don't know, versus just going, I don't like it. But the point is, I am bringing new humans into the truck and off-road space that we're not going to be in it before. Because the soccer mom who does see a Jeep with a grumper and a Vical goes, oh, my gosh, that's awesome. Like, I, I want to get one of those. Yep. That's it. Off-road is a drug, man. Once you're in, it's hard to ever go back away from it. And so if that's the catalyst to get a Jeep, to then get some bumpers, I go, wow. I, what is, so how do you make them fit bigger tires? Oh, that would be a lift kit. Oh, what wheels and tires you want? You want some Mickey Thompson's? Like, I personally single-handedly brought in thousands of new entrants. And once they're in, the evolution takes hold. Some of those early grumper people from 2000, whatever, 14, are probably buying Dynatrack 80 axles now and having it underneath their JK, and they've evolved. But that's what we need. The Dynatrax, the Atlas, the ORIs, all of those companies, we can't sit here and try to put up barriers to keep people less cool than us out. We need a very open and welcoming community that brings more entrance so that one, we can be keeping our lands open because of interests that exist. And two, so that we can fuel innovation through new revenue brought into our space. So that's the end of my soapbox. You know, I stand by those products. 
to this day. I mean, people that talk trash about the Grumper being a mall crawler, it's like, well, let's take a little closer look. It's actually three sixteenths of an inch in front of the frame horns. You literally couldn't have a more aggressive approach angle with integrated three quarter inch shackles while holding a 9,000 pound winch within that product. So technically you're wrong. It's extremely hardcore. The fact that you think the grill has been replaced and for some reason the Jeep community is excessively loyal to some other random human being that one time made a seven slot grill (laughs) is a little beyond me. Like what makes that human better than this one? Like who cares? Like there should be nine options for the front of it. Like round and square headlights. Yeah. Let it go, man. Have fun. Don't take yourself so seriously. But yeah, so you can tell I get passionate about all that because it's all in the space and you know, for me, year after year, growth after growth, you know, almost to a fault, I put every dollar back into Fab Fours, really because I wanted w- what's next, what's bigger. Man, we need a more wattage in a laser, so we got more capacity. God, we need redundancy in that press brake, and so we kept acquiring these resources that then allowed us to be very aggressive in product development. In fact, our model of single piece flow, lean manufacturing, leaning on wholesale distribution for our next day delivery puts us in this really unique spot where, you know, during this phone call, I could sketch up some crazy looking new rear bed mounted tire carrier for a gladiator. And by Monday, we could be test fitting that in a gladiator and by Friday there could be 50 of them loaded nationwide. That's awesome. And then we can run an ad. And if a guy in Boise is like, Hey, that's pretty cool, man. That's exactly what I was hoping for. Just like that. I was going to make one, but Oh, I can get it. Calls local off-road shop. Boom. You got it. So that cycle from A to B is kind of the result of the 17 year effort of building fab fours to the, you know, bumper juggernaut that it is now on our, you know, 80 acre campus, 146,000 square foot building, millions of dollars of equipment, 130 badass operators, you know, 20 people in the front office. It's a legit, you know, booming bumper company that then provides me, you know, right outside my door, there's six engineering workstations for CAD designers. Nice. To just bring these dreams to reality. And that's what it's all about. I mean, this morning, having nothing to do with you, I completely erased my whiteboard and wrote, how many things I got up there? Eight things I want to invent. And I can't read them because it's a little proprietary, but believe me, they're very bold. You know, some of which could be businesses even bigger than Fab Fours per revenue and just spreading kind of our influence. Uh, Now that we are acquired by Warren, you know, a lot of my reason for that was to put myself in a bigger sandbox to have access to adjacent markets, be it side-by-side, commercial, military, things that if we went and did on our own, we'd be successful at, but it'd take a while, you know, to go 
scratch and claw our way into relevance where Warren already has footholds and things. I can just apply a little bit of our own DNA and make some twists and leverage kind of the strengths that we've got in rapid development of sheet metal parts to plug them right into spots that they've already got a well-established market. Very exciting for the next chapter. Absolutely. I know that uh, when that all happened, I thought it was kept pretty, pretty quiet. You know, you you guys made the announcement and I was, uh, I I guess I wasn't shocked. You know, I was Mm. impressed. I give you kudos for that and hope that uh, those eight products on your or ideas that are on your whiteboard um, all come to fruition. That's for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you'd like the list. I'll text it to you afterwards. Okay. Confidentially. Maybe, uh, you know, uh, I've got a lot of ideas, but no way to do any of them. So maybe I'll send you a list too. Yeah, bring it. Yeah. Especially if it's fabricated sheet metal. Absolutely. There's a real beauty to that because you know, you don't have so much capital tied up in tooling, you know, or development. If, if it can be made out of sheet metal, I can bring it to life in 24 hours, which is super fun. That's awesome. Uh, I know that uh, when I interviewed Cora Junkin with, um, with her locker company, that they were, since everything is done basically in-house or job shops that are very close to her that she can make the design and have a, a prototype locker and manufactured the start manufacturing the parts within a week um, for a locker, which, you know, is not That's just crazy. Yeah. That's and, way more complicated <laughs> of a product. Exactly. She did the, uh, the Terex wow. lockers. Um, Dave Cole with ultra four needed you know, needed a locker for the back of one of his Kawasaki's or something. And they, I mean, within a week she had the prototype in hand and testing. And I was, I was, I was impressed and I'm impressed that you can take an idea like that as well and be able to have it, you know, ready to go in the same amount of time. It's awesome. Yeah. So to kind of tie that off and bring it to present day, as I pointed out, I mean, this is pretty fresh. You had actually asked me to interview probably four months ago, and I knew I was about two months out from the deal to sell the business. So I was like, well, I really can't. Something's brewing. I didn't want to disclose it, Like, but give me a couple months. Yep. And then sure enough, you know, my situation is unique. As we started with the timeline, I'm still 42. You know, I've got a 15-year-old daughter, 13-year-old son. So I'm actually getting close to having them done through high school, but I feel like just kind of coming into my prime now, as far as having the experience of building the business, having the resources under belt, and now kind of just a, a free look at what to do next. And so choosing Warren as an exit strategy, uh, exits actually the the common terminology. I'm not exiting. I'm not heading off to Tahiti here. It was more about, do I want to do it myself or could I do it faster? And I'm so freaking impatient. I saw a way to just leverage with Warren, which I mean, I don't even have to give them a reference. Anyone listening to this knows who they are. Yes. I was a fan of their stuff 
the day I got that first Jeep back in whatever, 96, you know, always love that brand. Who doesn't? And bumpers and winches, of course, are two peas in a pod. We've been making bumpers for them on the heavy duties for five or six years already. And then a lot of the leadership team that came into Warren after the private equity sold Warren to Keystone are Keystone execs that we'd already known for a decade. So they're so familiar and so much mutual respect already. And the fact we already do projects to understand each other's culture for me is like coming out of COVID had a fear, you know, we all did. I watched my business cut in half overnight last March and realized I didn't have a good exit strategy. So I better freaking start figuring one out. And then as it all came raging back, we got Fab Fours into such a great position, just rocking and rolling, great morale on the floor, bookings that we've never had before as far as backlog, just off the charts. I mean, it was just freaking working. I'm like, well, that's a good time. Like either I got to choose the path, which is I'm going to go double this business myself, you know, set some sort of big area audacious goal to challenge myself, or I need to look at selling it and then find a way to double it with others. And to the patient's point, it checked two boxes. It got some chips off the table for all the hard work and sacrifice my family had put in over all these years. And it was going to be a hyper accelerant into growing the business because we wouldn't have to organically do it all and learn every lesson and pain a brick at a time. Right. So that's gone down. It's only been six weeks. And unfortunately, us, like every other manufacturer in America right now, is suffering from supply chain issues and just incredible, I want to call it cost gouging, but I don't think anybody's actually winning down the road. It's just the prices for raw materials are beyond unprecedented. They're irrational. And a company like mine is so simple of a lemonade stand. I mean, I bring in steel, pallets, cardboard. I add labor and sell a bumper. So my supply chain is extremely short right to commodities. And so as those have been rocketing, we're feeling it real time. Whereas you're going to see a lot of the aftermarket is going to be lagging behind folks like Fab Fours and our bumper competitors out there and companies like Toolboxes where they're similar, that it's steel and labor. We have to be up so much and you'll lose a little sleep going, golly, you know, what can people stand to pay for a freaking bumper? And we're about to find out. Um, and it's not pretty, <laughs> no. but it's just the way it is. You have to, otherwise you're losing money, but uh, we'll let's, see. Let's, yeah. let's dive in a little bit to the, the supply issue, the supply chain issue. Back when China was building that big dam, they were buying all the steel, all, I mean, when we read, remember that we developed the Jellicoe site or uh, the Dayton, Tennessee site, 
you know, they had a, on top of that hill where all our spectators are at and, and where we set up, it was a salvage yard. Um, Kenny would go in and pick up cars at auction or just from neighbors, whatever, and then peel the parts off of them. But they all got stored there. And when he said, hey, we got this rock face, come out and take a look at it. I went and took a look at it and said, okay, you got great rock face out here. We need to do some blasting, but we need to get rid of all these cars. Because, I mean, that whole top of the hillside was covered, you know, just <laughs> stacked vehicles. Well, it just happened to be that it was the right, perfect time for him to do that. He caught just the end of it where the steel prices for scrap was so high, they brought in a crusher and, a, you know, and they got all the, that, that stuff out of there before the prices dropped. But all that stuff was being shipped overseas as scrap and then processed. Now I see the steel all going to Turkey is what it appears. Um, you know, being that we live part-time now in Texas, in Port Aransas, you know, they had the, what we call the three sisters there, which are decommissioned oil rigs. Those oil rigs have been sold off and now are going, have or are going to Turkey for dismantling and processing for scrap. Is, do you think that part of the, the pricing and everything is because the U.S. steel industry suffered because everything was going overseas and then they didn't have the stuff? Do you think that's part of the problem? Or do you think it's just it's just a natural, you know, what do you think is the issue? I don't think it's that grand. That could have been a, a subtle influence. Okay. And I'm sure the point of this podcast isn't to get too political. No, so no, we'll no. Stay no, away no. from the yeah. the sensitive zones. But as a business owner, early on, like whatever February, March, you know, COVID started to come in, cases were spreading, and then there was kind of this notion on social media that fueled up everywhere, which was you know, stay home, stop the spread. And just hearing that still gives me chills as you go, that's, that's a fairy tale. The whole world is connected. Supply chains are so intricate. We can't stop. And even that notion kind of pissed me off because that implied like, Hey, stay home. It's like, uh, then what are you going to eat and drink? Like what's in your pantry? Like, well, yeah, well, bullshit. Like, it's that's just a glorified notion, but you still assume Amazon's going to deliver anything you want. Like, why <laughs> don't those people get to stay home? Like, if you say stay home, there is nothing. You're back to living off of what's in your yard in three weeks when you run out of food and milk and you're, you're not going to Starbucks anymore. And so that was very irritating because – the groundswell around that, it was going to work. And sure as shit, we shut down the planet like that. So can you imagine, like, short of an asteroid, something that could make the entire world basically do the same thing at the same time? That just doesn't happen. And you fast forward to where whatever you believe where we stand in the COVID journey I mean, look at college football right now. Parts of the world are back to normal. Lots of parts are not. 
You know why? Sure. Because nobody's in charge. That's not our president. I'm not saying period. There's never, there's nobody in charge of the world. Yet somehow the world would collectively flip the switch off. But since there, nobody can collectively flip it on. You don't get to tell everybody, like, go back to February 2020. And so it trickles in. And not one person, I don't think, anywhere could have guessed how fast it came back. You know, I was sitting in my office with just my CFO, had sent everyone else home except operators because I was determined to keep running to take care of my customers. You know, if a jobber's out there trying to sell a bumper, by God, I'm going to make it. Right. And so we, we stayed here open and, uh, it was a dark, dark time. It's like, Holy crap, this business plummeted to nothing. And so I had to do a massive layoff of almost half my company. So sad. You know, you just watch it slip through your fingers. And then just 60 days later, the demand starts picking up and you're like, okay, okay. A little bit of breathing room. Like, all right. So the world's still turning. Somebody's buying something 90 days, 120 days. It was on a freaking skyrocket because it just started to happen. And you fast forward another seven or eight months. I kind of refer to it as Disneyland money. You know, you got a normal family of four or five, that skips one Disney trip, that guy's got 15 extra thousand dollars all of a sudden. So let alone all the other stimulus and this and that, like there was a abundance of savings and time that led to insatiable demand for things, you know, cause you can't go out to eat, you can't travel. So you've got money in your home. Well, what do you want? Traeger grills, lawn furniture, pools put in, and then, well, why not? Buy a side-by-side, trick out your truck. And so the aftermarket felt this just absolute boom, which had euphoria for a moment. We were lucky. Uh, we were, we're in South Carolina, you know, our workforce, good old boys, you know, people that were raised to work and earn their keep. So every single operator we called that we had had to lay off came back to work. Nice. So it, it felt great. Like now we've got huge demand. We've got our workforce. We're in tip top shape. We're running. We're gunning. We're having a great time. And then the price increases started. At almost the same time, the risk of shortage for even raw materials was starting to hit. And so it's not turkey or recycling or whatever. Like, those plants all shut down too. The day I was sitting in my dark office with just my CFO, there was some dark office at a steel mill with a CEO and his CFO going, holy crap, you know, because demand literally stopped. Everyone quit buying in supply chains. Consumers were buying, manufacturers stopped, distributors stopped. Everyone went to a wait and see pattern and let me conserve cash. So if you have inventory, sell it, but dare not buy. And that has a very damaging effect going down. So you take our scenario from a wholesale distributor, they have millions of dollars in inventory. The day they freak out, hey, don't buy anything else, but keep selling. 
well, that means I'm not getting orders, but I'm still trying to keep my supply chain downstream healthy and take care of my employees. Well, all industries were doing that. And so you, you make this kind of crack in the whip that has to flow through. And when the demand came raging back, you got Fab Fours buying steel, Traeger Grills buying steel, you know, a backyard playground slide buying steel. Everybody's buying steel from who? The steel mill that literally shut it all down. And now when they come back, they might have union. I mean, to this day, a lot of our steel and tube suppliers still are running at 50% attendance trying to hire and retain labor. So they are vastly under capacity at the same time that their demand has rocketed. And I don't think that companies did themselves a favor either because I guarantee every single last one of us tried to hoard as much as we could. It's like toilet paper for big companies. Just if you can buy it, get it because we can't run out of steel. So I think there's probably an excess in a bunch of buildings right now, just exacerbating the fact that as of today, these steel mills are still not back at full capacity that they were in February. Right. Okay. So long rant on that, but man, it is tough because whatever you want, still going to boil down to commodities, copper, aluminum, steel, paper pulp, you know, those things run off of index and it's pure supply and demand. Well, then those components go into, you know, 5 billion things you can go buy off of Amazon. Some that range from razor thin gross margins to products with very healthy gross margins. And so it's all about to just come to a head here. The only things that are going to right this ship is either discussing inflation that we all have to push all the way down, or we're going to see, unfortunately, a bunch of businesses start to fail that can't pass these costs forward. You know, there's certain goods that people just will not pay a certain dollar amount for. I hope that bumpers at the price increases we're going to have out here don't fall in that category, but there's certainly smaller doodads and things. And so, or take home gyms, for example. I, I mean, think how many home gyms must have gone in in the year 2020. Right. Like you could not buy a weight bench. Let's pick some random number. Two million people wanted to put in home gyms, where in a normal year, it should have been 200,000. That's irrational that many people don't need home gyms. Like all that steel didn't belong in people's garages, but it, the world just got aligned. It's like having a magnet line up all the grain in the steel, which isn't supposed to happen. The world should look chaotic of all sorts of different purchases and different times. And this is popular in the spring. This is popular in the fall. And, oh, you'll never sell this backpack at this time. And who wants a lawnmower now? And then COVID just aligned the world to turn off, then turn back on. And everybody wants the same types of things at the same time. It's going to be insane to watch how long this takes to unravel. Right. Like cars. 
If you want a new truck, forget it. (laughs) It's crazy to go see an empty car lot on every single dealership. So what happens when, you know, these 4 million chips show up? (laughs) You can't go from empty lots to tons of trucks. That doesn't work either. It's supposed to just be a flow that never stopped for the last 20 years, 50 years. But we've actually found a way inadvertently to engineer a moment in time where nothing is right. And so to undo this cataclysmic challenge, it's tough. It's tough. It's going to be something to behold the next couple months. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, you've, you've probably put it on display better than anybody else I've read or listened to. So thank you for that. That's, uh, yeah, sure. I um, thought about it a lot. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine so being on that side of the industry. I, I'm, uh, I'm quite impressed. So what is next for, for fab four besides the eight things that are on your whiteboard? Well, uh, it's that and look, Warren, I, I shouldn't speak out of school or take, I'm not taking any of their credit. They have some incredible opportunities in front of them right now with OE work. And it's just really cool. It's another bridge of the aftermarket into mainstream, you know, OE. We've seen it for a while, you know, with like the Dodge power wagon had a worn winch in it. Well, now the Ford Tremor has a worn winch in it. I mean, that's cool. If you're in the aftermarket, you can only dream of such things. Well, they are now getting, I mean, it sounds like a negative word, but inundated, I would say, with these incredible opportunities. And Clackamas, which is headquarters, if you've been there, awesome campus up there in Oregon, they're a bit landlocked. So that's an advantage that has now a sister company, especially with so much standing history, we can be seamless with that organization, start sharing resources back and forth and leverage what we have here, which is, you know, we strive to be the employer of choice in Lancaster, South Carolina, our small town and have. So we have a line of people that want to work here, allowing us to be selective and just saying that some of your listeners will be jealous of because in parts of the country, you're having to be, you know, bidding almost for labor and still suffering. We've got a great opportunity of hard work and folks here that want to be part of this team. And we got 80 acres and I still have the front building with almost 40,000 square feet ready. So we're kicking off even in November, um, making some aftermarket based winches for them, which is kind of the very first transition to uh, playing with them in some of their space and going back and forth. So that's the near term horizon, just taking advantage of so many opportunities that exist in side by side OE and commercial where we can leverage some of the resources we have here in South Carolina and with our sister company, Fabtech and Factor 55, two other sweet brands that, you know, this SEMA show, we're having a couple dinners will be the first time for myself and the leadership teams from all of four of our companies to be in the same place at the same time and really start talking about the next step. Right now, it's been kind of the boring part 
of synergies and cost and freight and that type of thing. None of that gets me excited. It should, <laughs> but it doesn't. What gets me excited is working with Fabtech to make one of these things on my list up here that nice. when you see it, you're just like, dude, that's, you can buy that. And that's what I want to pull off. You know, there's so many creative, ingenious, just enthusiasts that on their own are producing really badass stuff out there. And I like to use all that as inspiration and kind of molding that, but then having an ability to take something that a guy like I use, my builder hit Tim O'Dell here in Lincolnton that helped me build Chimera and the original legend. I mean, the guy can do anything you want, but man, you're going to pay for it, right? Cause you got to pay him by the hour to kind of scratch and claw that out of a piece of clay and turn it into something real to take that though piece that people think is just incredible and they want it. And then be able to turn that into something that's actual mainstream available through distribution next day across the country. That's what fires me up. You know, how can we take things that seem normal to us now think three steps ahead, looking around the corner for stuff people hadn't even thought they might want yet and be the first ones to actually go bring that to life commercially, as opposed to just, you know, the equivalent of a one-off race team that's dumping R and D money on a certain performance attribute. Right. That's what I think you're going to see out of us in this sister company and acquisitions to come based on the leadership, the vision for this, uh, it's coming down from Warren. It's going to be, you know, turning guys like myself and Brent and Mike Costa loose on collaborating, inventing. And then we got the resources to bring it to life. So we're living the dream. It's That's awesome. what's happening. That's awesome. So I'd like to say, um, is there anything else that you would like to discuss? We've kind of come full circle, but, um, you know, I know that we, I, I, I think this is a, a, been a great interview, um, very insightful into the, not only the, the birth and growth of Fab Fours and yourself, but also the process in general of aftermarket parts that most, most of us that are enthusiasts have no clue on, you know, I mean, I, I had no clue what it takes to, to create product and get it out there. Um, I've talked to a lot of guys so far with this interview that do have done that, but we've never gone in depth like you have with us and that I really appreciate that. So is there anything else that you have, uh, that you'd like to discuss? You know, I, I've got an open door and plant here. Anybody wants to come see how bumpers are made, I'd encourage you to do it. Because what I want everyone to know is these are hardworking folks that love this brand, love this industry, and just want to see the whole thing succeed and grow. That is synonymous with saying, hey, be kind. If your parents didn't ever tell you this, I will. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Because we are all on the same team. We want the same thing to promote the automotive aftermarket 
see it succeed and grow. And I'm telling you right now, everybody that comes to Fab Fours every day is working as hard as they can to participate in that. And it takes all different styles, shapes, sizes, and products to create an entire community that's going to check the boxes for all would-be entrants. So check out our catalog before you overjudge. We've got everything from ranch bumpers that hold 16.5 winches that, you know, Halliburton might need 500 of them for the oil patch. That is pure utility to the craziest looking limb riser that nobody on the planet needs. That looks like a saw blade. And I hope somebody powder coats it purple just to be obnoxious. <laughs> that whole spectrum is what we're all about because, you know, I'm not saying we're a sellout. If somebody will pay, we will make it. Although people would like to typecast us as that, we're still staying in our lane. We're just blurring the edges of it. We're saying, look, if we were all doing the same thing, there should only be three of us. Right. But there's not, you know, and to even the most judgy of consumers out there, I can look at your rig too and pick out stuff you didn't have to put on, but you did because it was cool. Yep. So you admit there's a spectrum to that where there's moments you've transcended utility into taste and preference. And if you can admit that exists, then man, if you see something, that person obviously likes it. What is wrong with that? They chose it. They spent their money on it trying to judge them or cast them as a type and disparage them. I don't understand the goal of that, that that's going to somehow abolish that from existing because it's not true. Once there's a market for it, it will expand. It would be better off for folks to say, Hey, welcome. Love having you in the community. Let me show you this, you know, now that you're into it, check this out. That's the type of community we ought to be so that this thing can just keep growing exponentially. But it ain't going to stop me. All those haters have uh, really propelled our business. And so we'll take it. <laughs> in fact, I need to add something on the whiteboard that's offensive again, just to keep that momentum going. There you go. But there you go. Good time. I love it. All I right. love it. And I hope to see everybody out on the trail. Okay. Well, Greg, thank you so much for spending the time with us and uh, explaining and, and dwelling into the business aspects of, uh, of Fab Fours and the off-road industry. You got it. And if anybody's out there uh, struggling with supply chain or other, uh, I'm sure you can find a way to catch me. Yeah. Greg Higgs, Fab Force. All right, Greg. Thank you so much. I guess. See yeah. ya. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy these podcasts, please give us a rating. Share some feedback with us via Facebook or Instagram and share our link among your friends who might be like-minded. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.